it's a privilege for me to be here with you uh, and to share on this rather intriguing topic. Finding hope in uncertain times. Now, what is intriguing about the topic is that we are, there are two things we are actually saying even before we begin to say anything at all. First is, we are grappling with hopelessness. Why would you want to find something that you haven't lost? Where have we lost our hope or how have we lost it? That's one. Second, it's intriguing we are raising a question such as this at a time such as this because we are easily living in one of the most comfortable times in human history. So here's, here's the question. Why are we asking about hope when supposedly we are in a very comfortable situation? It reminded me of something that most of us would remember if we uh, uh, are familiar with literature, the tale of two cities and Charles Dickens. Here's what Charles Dickens says when he writes, you know, it's in the mid-19th mid century, and this is what he writes. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom and was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light as it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. We were going all directly to heaven. And then there's a pause. You can almost feel it as he writes it. We are all going direct the other way. Sounds almost like written for today. Why are we looking for hope when there's so much going well? You see, we are living in a world where we actually have more than we've ever had before. Just think about information. We have more information available at our fingertips than we've ever had in human history. I remember a few years ago when I was still in India and working for a software company, uh, we, we kind of worked through a project which is called Service on Tap. You could ac gain access to any service by just clicking a button. That was revolutionary. This was in the, uh, the mid-90s uh, to the tail end of the 90s. And we were saying, wow, this is incredible. You can click a button and get service. Think of what's happening today. We have access to more information than anyone in any generation. In fact, you can say that we have more access of informa to information today than all the previous generations put together. And yet, look at how ignorant people are. You know, we assume that just because we have access to information, that makes us intelligent. It doesn't. Look at connections. We are the most deeply connected people. Okay, how many of you have less than 50 friends on Facebook? Well, it says a lot. You know, all you need today to become a friend is to like someone. That's all you need. You have no idea. How many of you know at least the names of the 50 people on your Facebook? That's interesting, isn't it? We've got hundreds of them as friends, and we hardly know their names. What does that do to relationships? I was reading an article a few years ago, not, not actually a few years, a couple of years ago, as I was doing this study on um, 
disconnected connections. A rather ironic title, but that's exactly what the author went on to say. The human being has a limited capacity for relationships. We either go wide and spread it thin, or we go deep. And we limit it to a few. You see, we are the most interconnected generation, and yet we are the most loneliest of people. And it's a tragedy that you could actually be alone in a crowd. What about entertainment? Again, you can be entertained with whatever you want at the click of a button, and yet we are one of the most bored generations in the history of humanity. There is something fascinating about reflecting what Dickens wrote in the light of how we live today and what our experiences are. You know, Dallas Willard says this in one of his books, Divine Conspiracy. It's a fascinating book if you want to really understand why we human beings long for the things we do. And he tells a story of a fighter pilot who was, um, she was actually recruited to be the first fighter pilot in, in the Air Force or something like that, the story goes. And she was in one of her high-speed maneuvers. She was doing extremely well, but within a matter of seconds, she died. Because she thought she was going on a steep climb when actual fact she was heading to the ground. There is a need for speed, but doesn't matter how fast or how slow you're going, if you're headed in the wrong direction, progress is regress. And sometimes it could be a dangerous one, as was in her case. So the question is this. What are we actually looking for when we ask, where is hope? And more importantly, why do we need hope? Can't we just go along doing what we need to do? Can't we just go along accomplishing what we can accomplish, acquiring what we can acquire? Why does hope matter to a human being? And if it matters, how might we acquire it? How might we have access to it? And you see, I want for us to understand this. Because when we ask the question of what is happening out there and why am I looking for what I'm looking, we are actually asking two very, very important questions. You see, it assumes that we are supposed to be somewhere, but we've gone somewhere else. At least that much is the assumption made. We're, we're supposed to be here, but we don't find ourselves there. We find ourselves somewhere else. And that's the fascinating thing about drifting. We don't plan to drift. We just happen to drift. None of us plan to destroy our lives. But we find ourselves in a place time and time again where... We don't want to be where we found ourselves. And we ask ourselves the question, how did I get here in the first place? And then we begin the quest for hope. And so I, the, we ask two kinds of questions. The first kind is, who am I and why am I feeling this deep angst in my heart? Why am I looking for hope? See, that, that kind of question is a question that pertains to our identity and our quest. We want something and we are wondering why we haven't got what we want. But there's a second kind 
in the same light, there's a second kind of question that we're asking, and that is, we know intuitively that something has gone wrong. We don't know what's gone wrong, but we have a sense that something has gone wrong. We, we assume that we should have been here, but then we're not here, and something has gone apart. That expresses our regret. Did, did you notice the way the questions are asked? In one sense, the question is asked in terms of the quest why or how do I get to what I want and should be? And the other question is, why am I not where I'm supposed to be? The quest of life and the regrets of life both come together when you look for hope. When you don't get what you've looked for, you're wondering why. When you've gone in a direction where you never intended to be, you're asking why. But you're asking that from two very different perspectives. And I think the answer very simply comes in one word. The answer to both these questions, the questions of our uh, deepest need and accomplishments on one side and our greatest regrets on the other come from one single word. Human beings are meant to flourish. You know, Isaiah used that word, peace. That's actually what we are meant to accomplish. We are not meant to be static people. Humanity is never meant to be static. Think about this. We are never satisfied with yesterday. We always want more for today and much more for tomorrow. It doesn't matter what we've accomplished. Our accomplishments matter only as much as the applause. Once the applause dies down, those accomplishments don't satisfy us any longer. Human beings are not designed to live off the memories of the past. We are designed to flourish. We are designed to constantly move forward. And there is something that's going wrong with us as human beings. And we constantly ask the question, why? Why are we where we are? And that tension, in many ways, can be re relieved if there's only one condition met. What are we assuming every time we ask the question, why? Have you thought about that? What, what is our fundamental assumption that we make when we ask the question, why? You see, you can t pick up a manual, right? Let's say you got a new car and it's got a fancy you know, lock system, you've tried everything, it's not opening, and you can pick up the manual and you can actually ask the manual the question, how does this lock work? But you make a very different assumption when you ask the question, why? The question, why, is always asked to a person. You don't ask whys to a process or a manual only to a person. So here's the thing. Human beings are hardwired to flourish and intuitively we know there is something that has gone wrong and instinctively we want to ask the question why and we have to pause and ask ourselves a question. Who can answer that for us? You know, I, I lived in Dubai for a few years, and one of the things that I'll, I'll never forget, this, the roads are amazing in Dubai. 
there are some roads where your lower speed limit is 80 kilometers. You sh should not drive below 80 kilometers on that road. I mean, it's, it's fun, right? So it was one of these roads which was in connecting between two uh, Emirates, between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, they just built it. It's called the Emirates Highway. And th th it had one of these conditions. You cannot drive uh, below 80. So you, you have cars, all the fancy ones, uh, driving at pretty high speeds. But there was one piece on the road where they came to, you literally thought you were going to be killed by the person next to you. Because every car started swaying. They were literally going like this. And at that speed, and I don't think there was any car that was driving below 100. And they were all swaying this way. It's, it was a six-lane road. And you can see this happening in front of you. And you know you've got barely a few seconds and you are in that mess. And as I was driving and I reached that space, I realized why this was happening. Because that part of the road was freshly laid and there was no road marking. Incredible, isn't it? You have such in powerful cars, people who've been driving for eons at such high speeds, and yet when they came to that patch of road where, where there were no markers, they had no way of keeping to the straight path. It was sheer grace that no one banged into anyone. With a short, short patch. I mean, less than a minute and we were all out back on our sane way of driving, you know, keeping to our lanes and all of that. But that, I tell you, if, if I had a heart condition, I'd have probably collapsed at that point. If that is how tender a human being is, if that is how crucial point of reference is, and if we long for someone to answer us. The question is, where do we go? Who do we speak to? When we think there is no hope and we want hope. You know, one of the things that we must appreciate, especially when we... Anybody who's a doctor here in this room? Nobody? Sad? Okay. How many of you have actually gone to the doctor to tell the doctor what's wrong with you? And has the doctor agreed with you? What was that? I have a headache? No. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, supposing you went to the doctor and you said to the doctor, you know what, I've, I've got a headache and I want you to give me an MC and a, and a strip of Panadol. And he said, okay, great. And he wrote you the MC and gave you a strip of Panadol. Um, would he have his license the next day? Would the doctor keep his license the next day? If he just listened to what you said and then prescribed what you asked for and gave you your medical certificate? Would he? What's the, what is the assumption you're making when you go to a doctor? You're assuming that he will actually take what you're saying seriously use that and still do his own investigation, understand what is wrong with you, and then appropriately deal with your problems. 
You see, when we're asking for the question or the answer to the question of hope, and we ask this to a person, we're at least assuming that much, that the one we are speaking to knows what the problem is, knows how to fix it, and will fix it. And one thing that we recognize is that we, in and our own, cannot fix it. I was just speaking to a mother um, of a 16-year-old on Saturday. Uh, I, was, I was doing a talk on why the next generation is so restless and paranoid uh, and what we can do about it. So he finished that and she said, you know, I don't think I can articulate things the way you did. Will you speak to my son? I said, I think as a mother, you can speak a lot more into his situation than I can, but I'm happy to speak to him. At five this evening, she sends me a message, and um, uh, I did not reply to that message. I was just reading, and I said, I'll, I'll reply to it later. At 5.15, she calls me, uh, and she says this to me. Can I fix a meeting with you and my son today? I said, I'm going for a meeting. Um, um, how about uh, tomorrow or next week or something like that? She says, you don't understand. I was speaking to my son about some of the things you said on Saturday, and his question to me is that, what's the point in living? I'm afraid for my son. A 16-year-old asking his mother, what's the point in living? Now, this is not an exception. And 16 is not the youngest. A few months ago, I was speaking at one of the events organized for, by YFC. A 14-year-old walked up to me, and he said to me, I have everything that money can buy, but I don't want to live. Do you have an answer to my predicament? I have everything money can buy, but I don't want to live. In the last six months, I had done, wow, sorry, that was, okay, that's a message from the same mother. Uh, the last six months, I had done three talks on suicide, uh, two here in Singapore and one in Hong Kong. And what is fascinating is that I was in Hong Kong to deal with the question of why young people take their lives. Um, I'm not familiar with the Hong Kong scene, so I asked for some research material. I picked up, I was reading about it, and one of the things that struck me was the shift in demographics. About 20 to 30 years ago, the ones who were committing suicide were people who were in their uh, either late 40s to mid 50s, male, who had nothing to do with in terms of income. They were kind of literally sidelined, and uh, the, the next bracket was the 65 plus. Again, similar profile, retired, no money, living in one of those one-cage units in Hong Kong and so on and so forth. But fast forward 20-plus years later, in the current scheme of things, the average age of the one committing suicide, and this time there was no distinction between male and female, there's hardly any female representation in the earlier survey, but this time, no distinction between male and female. It was both male and female who were committing suicide. And what was incredible is that the age dropped from the late 40s, 50s, and 60s to the mid-20s. Invariably, everybody had 
a university education or access to a uni university education and finish the university education, they were well placed in jobs. And the eve before my meeting, the paper carried an article of someone who had committed suicide two days ago in Hong Kong. She jumped off from the 40th floor or something of her office building and she was found dead at the floor. And what struck me was the reporter had got to interview some of her friends and her friends looked at the reporter and said, we don't know, she was the most fun-loving and full-of-life person we've ever met. Can you imagine how disconnected we are from each other, where the person working with you and one of them who's working with her studied with her through university as well? So you're talking about at least five years of knowing each other. And you're looking at this person and you're saying, she was full of life, fun-loving and the most full of life person we've ever met. We have no idea. You see, a human being is not designed to live on his or her own. Our flourishing depends on our relationship. Now if our flourishing depends on our relationship and if constantly we are asking the question why, you have to appreciate the fact that outside of our relationships with each other and a God who relates to us, a human being is designed for destruction. There is no hope. And see, that's the thing about hope. Hope is not what we make up. No one lives in hope based on what they make up. In fact, the more you have to make up stuff, the more desperate you become. And the thing is, I told the 14-year-old this. I said the line that separates despair from death is hope. You take hope away, none of us will have a reason to live. And the tragedy of, of our existence today is that there are plenty of people who don't want to live. Because they have literally grown up in this environment where there is no difference between a human being and a human doing. Because their identity revolves around what they do, what they accomplish or what they acquire. People are treated as valuable if there is something they can accomplish. In fact, we live in a culture where we treasure things and trash people. Despair is almost round the corner for everyone. And so the question is very simply this. How do we work around this? Where do we go from here? You see, when a culture loses its sense of reference... It's only a matter of time before we collide into one another and destroy each other. I was speaking at Indonesia uh, a few uh, earlier this year, I think. Was it, or was it late, late last year? I can't remember when, though. In one of my trips to Indonesia, I was speaking at a, 
uh, at a setting where the, the whole question was, why do we need God to live meaningful, hopeful lives? And I finished my talk and this lady stood up and she said to me, she said, I, I like all that you said, but I don't agree with anything you said. And you're free to say the same thing after we finish this talk. I hope we'll have some time to interact. And I said, that's okay, but tell me why. Because I made the case saying that if you take God out of the equation, uh, there is no point of reference and we're all doomed because of our own proclivities. And she said, I disagree. I said, why so? She said, I work in rescuing teenage girls from, from the ring of prostitution. I said, that's an amazing thing to do. I commend you for it. And she said, exactly my point, but I don't have any faith or belief in God. I said, I used to be a Christian, then I became an agnostic, and now I'm a complete atheist. I don't even think that God exists. And, and then she said, I, I, in fact, I think uh, to say that God exists is, is foolish. And you yourself have said that I'm doing a good thing. So there you go. I don't need God. You are my witness. I said, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. I said, you're telling me that you work in rescuing these teenage children from uh, prostitution, right? She said, yes. Can I ask you why you do that? She said, because these, these children are valuable. They're precious. I said, I agree. And I said, can I ask you one more question? She said, what is that? Now, supposing I agreed with you that these children are valuable and precious, and I used that to justify why they should remain in that prostitution ring. If she could throw something at me, she would have. I said, before you get angry, let me ask you this. You have translated value to mean they have to be out of that prostitution ring. I'm saying they are valuable and this is the prime time of their life. And the only way we can make use of that value, maximize it, is to keep them in that ring because value for me is money. Why am I wrong and you right? And who is to tell? I don't disagree with you that the, these children are of value. But for me, they having value means more money in my bank account. Why should I agree with what you are saying? She, she actually stormed out of the room. But she waited for me outside. And then she said this to me, I'm very angry with what you said. I said, I'm sorry if I've offended you. She said, no, I'm angry because you're right. Without God, there's no reference. I'm angry with myself because I cannot justify my position as right and yours as wrong without appealing to a God who is moral. You take away a point of reference and you see that's the whole point about a point of reference. It is not about you and I. It is external to us and it holds both of us accountable. Now think of all that I've said just now to us. We long for answers to questions and we ask why which means we want to talk to someone. 
we not only long for answers to our questions, we want it to go in a direction that allows us to flourish and not perish, which means we want to talk to someone who has our best interests at heart. And sometimes we know that our own definitions of good and not good have failed us. How many of us have done things which we thought were right and good and ended up putting us in a place where we would not want to be? We've all had that experience, right? So we know we are capable of assuming things to be good and then ending up in a place where what we've assumed has actually turned on the other way around. So we not only need to have someone who's committed to our good, but also knows what is good for us. You cannot find hope if these three things don't come together. You need a person. You need a person who is committed to your good and he's committed to your good even if you don't agree because you don't know it all. And I can tell you in no uncertain terms, you take Jesus out of the equation, you don't get any of these. I'm in the final stages of finishing the manuscript of a book I'm writing and it's on the love of God. And I've spoken to many people Everybody believes God, if God exists, loves. But you will be surprised that outside of the God of the Bible, there is no worldview that describes God as love. Some worldviews describe God as a non-personal force. How can you speak of love when God or your ultimate reality is a non-personal force? Some worldviews speak of God as a non-relational entity. How can you speak of love if God is a non-relational entity? The only place where God is described as personal, relational and volitional that he wants to love you is when it comes to Jesus. And so I say to you, in you are in a quandary. There's only one place to turn. Because there's only one God who is described as a person. So you can ask him why. There's only one God who is described as a person who has stepped into your space. I think I've shared this. Some of you would have heard me share this before. I, I remember having this conversation with Tian, who is a Vietnamese uh, in Hanoi of a few years ago. And I was speaking to her about the brokenness of life. And she listened to me. I mean, she's a, a PhD in, in marine biology, specialized in uh, prawn biology. I've done my prawn biology and stuff like that. So we hit off very well. We had a lot of conversations around that subject and so on and so forth. And so she's been hearing this on, because she asked me, well, how come I left prawn biology and went and doing what I'm doing now? So I told her my story. And then she was very interested about it. But every time it came to Jesus, she would recoil. And I wouldn't push her. So this was the evening before I left. We were having dinner together. So we were sitting in this restaurant having dinner. And then she said, it's not fair. That was the first statement to me. Uh, uh, I, I didn't know. I thought she wanted me to pay the bill. And so 
I said, what, what do you mean it's not fair? She said, it's not fair for me to expect someone else to pay for my problems. I knew where she was going because I kept telling her that Jesus has paid for your sins. He has stepped into your life. She said, no, I can't. This is not fair. This is not fair. This is not fair. And then she kept putting such immense pressure on me. I couldn't get to think and tell her what I was thinking about. But the toothpick I had in my hand broke. And it occurred to me that I could use that to communicate what I wanted to say to her. So I placed the toothpick on the table and I said, Thien, can you do me a favor? Can you put this toothpick together, but please don't touch it? She looked at the broken toothpick, looked at me as though I've lost my senses, and then said this, brokenness cannot fix itself. And I said, precisely my point. Brokenness cannot fix itself. Hopelessness cannot find hope on its own. Albert Einstein said this, the mind that has used, been used to create the problem cannot be used to solve it. In other words, he is saying the kind of thinking we've had that's ended up creating this problem is of no value in helping us redeem ourselves from that problem. We live in uncertain times. How do you think we've come to that? Isn't it our own doing? We're looking for hope because we are creatures who cannot live with the memories of the past and must live in the light of what the future has to offer to us. And so we cannot look to ourselves for the answer. We must look outside of us and there is only one place where you can actually come when you want an answer to this and that is to Jesus because when you ask the question why, you're looking at asking that to a person but you also expect the person to know what you're going through and to be able to respond to it. He has been in our place. And But you're also looking at someone who can not merely look at us and say, well, I'm so sorry you're going through this. But you're looking at someone who's able to fix that brokenness. And the answer to our predicament comes in two words. Come. In Greek it's two words, in English it translates to three, to me. Jesus is the only one who came and said to people, come to me. And I will give you shalom, rest, peace. Now the option before us is very simple. We either continue asking why we are in the mess we are in, and apply band-aids on broken bones and let the pain aggravate or we meet the physician, find his prescription for us and then help ourselves in the process. How do we find hope in uncertain terms? Let me give you the answer in one sentence. Come to Jesus. Thank you. You've been patient 
and it's been wonderful to speak to you.